St. Augustine uh, once wrote, love God and do whatever you please. I, I, lo- I love that quote. It's been uh, variously interpreted. As I understand it, what he meant is this. If you love God, then you will love the things that God loves. And so you can do whatever you want because whatever you want is actually what God will want, right? So just love God and then all of your other loves, your lesser loves will either fall away or they will fall into place underneath your love for God. So love God and then do whatever you please, right? Or as David said in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you delight in God, then you will delight in the things that God delights in and then the desires of your heart will be aligned with God so you can love God and do whatever you like, right? So, or if I can put that uh, in a principle form, practically, what that means is we do what we love. Okay, you with me? We, we actually do what we love. Sounds really simple, maybe even simplistic, but at any given moment, in any set of circumstances, you will choose to do what you love the most in that moment, right? We do what we love. And maybe you're saying to yourself, yeah, but Brian, so often I'm facing circumstances and my heart is torn. There are maybe more than two things even that I love in that moment and I'm wrestling, struggling, trying to decide what will I choose. And I say to you, exactly, right? That's exactly the struggle because our hearts are divided and our priorities get jumbled. There are multiple things that we love, but the fact is this, whatever you love most in that particular moment is what you will choose to pursue, right? You will do what you love, or if I can state it differently, what you love matters. So love what matters, right? What you love really matters because it's going to determine what you do. So love things that actually matter, Psalm chapter 4, verse 2, David wrote this. How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? See, that's our problem. That's our problem. We love stupid stuff. (laughs) We do. We love just foolish things that don't really matter. And so in these moments of decision, our hearts are torn because we don't actually love God supremely. And we need our hearts to be reoriented. We need our hearts to be transformed. So the question is this, how do we actually know what we love? Well, I would argue this. When we're in stressful situations, when we're in trials and tribulations, in those moments, the things that we really love are what come to the surface, right? When we are really getting squeezed, our greatest loves come to the surface because we begin to fear that those things might be taken away from us, right? And we react in fear and anger and different things and we protect in the midst of that stress, right? Those moments reveal what we really love. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to look at uh, Matthew 26 and 27, and we're going to look at various characters, okay, players in this drama. Because what happens in Matthew 26 and 27 is it's several very stressful days, and not just for Jesus, but for everyone around Jesus. And as you look at each of their reactions, it reveals what they truly love. And having looked at what they truly loved, I want us to then spend a little bit of time talking about how do we allow God's spirit to to reform our affections, right? Once God has revealed what we really love to us, then how do we allow God to reform and transform the things that we really love? So I want you to read with me in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. 
It says, when Jesus had finished all of these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, the first group that we want to look at is the spiritual leaders in Jesus' day. The spiritual leaders loved honor. They loved the praise of men more than they loved anything else. Matthew chapter 23, verse 6 says this, The scribes and the Pharisees loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. What, what was the greatest passion in their hearts? That people thought well of them, that people praised them, that people saw them as important. And so all of the choices that they make during this Passion Week are animated by this love. And the reason that they hate Jesus is because he is a threat to their honor. Read with me verse 3, chapter 26. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Why would a riot occur? Because there were a lot of people who actually loved Jesus and honored Jesus. Or they at least thought that Jesus was the Messiah who would rescue them from Rome. And Jesus was taking honor away from them. So they said, well, we better do this quietly. Otherwise the people will think poorly of us. Let us sneak him away and kill him secretly. Right? These are the spiritual leaders of the nation. Right? And if we really step back for a moment, we say that this is unexpected behavior. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, even the Herodians and the Sadducees, all of the various religious groups became aligned around one thing, and that was the murder of an innocent Jewish rabbi. Why, crazy behavior for spiritual leaders. Why? It's because the love of something other than God had transcended in, in their hearts, and, and now what they wanted more than anything else was the respect of people, and Jesus has taken it away from them. And so they wanted to kill him. They loved honor. They loved praise. They loved prestige, and they loved it even more than they loved God himself. Second, Judas loved money. Chapter 12, verse 6 of John, it says, Judas was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Judas's behavior was driven by the thing that he loved the most, and that was money. Read with me chapter 26, verse 6. It says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Right? He has this final moment of clarity. He realizes... I'm not going to get much money out of Jesus. 
The kingdom that I expected is not going to actually happen. Jesus keeps talking about rejection and crucifixion. And it's clear that the spiritual leadership is against him. And there's not actually enough in this money box to make me happy, nor is it going to get filled adequately. In fact, money that could have been put into there, he doesn't really care about the poor, but money that could have been put into the money box and a little bit distributed to the poor, a little bit into my pockets, it's not going there. And Jesus says, that's okay. And so one of Jesus' followers who has walked with him for three years does something just incredibly horrific and looks for a way to betray him. Why? Because he loved something more than he loved Jesus. Now, no one actually loves money for the sake of money, right? You don't see people don't fill a room full of bills and sleep in there and swim around. Right? It's not money. They love what money can give them, which might be honor from people. They might get more friends, right? Proverbs talks about that. Many are the friends of the wealthy. They can buy friendships. They can buy safety and security, right? Some people spend and spend and spend, but some people hoard it because they feel safer that way, right? Maybe it's the pleasure they spend and spend for comfort or pleasure or safety, security. They're all different things that, that animate a person's love of money. Whatever it was, we don't know with Judas, but he wanted something from that money and he wasn't getting it. And that became transcendent in his heart, even above Jesus, The disciples loved kingdom authority. Read with me in chapter 26, verse 31. It says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Even if we have to die with you, we will not deny you. Why? They were willing to go to war. And even with the Romans, and Jesus said, well, maybe one or two of you needs a sword. Man, they buckled up, got a sword. They were ready to fight because they had this concept, right, of a kingdom that would crush Rome and they would get 12 thrones and they would rule over Israel and over eventually all nations. And that's what they really longed for. That's what they wanted. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at this. Jesus kept telling them, I'm going to be crucified, rejected, buried, rise from the dead. And they, they said, no, oh, no, that's not going to happen, Jesus. Or they just ignored it completely and began to fight about who was greatest. James and John, can we have the seats on the right and the left? What did they want? Well, ultimately, at this stage of their understanding, they're they're not loving Jesus most. They're loving what Jesus can give them, which is authority over other people. And that animates all of their choices, so much so that when they see that suffering might be involved in following Jesus, they run away. Because that's not why they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus for authority, not for suffering. And so all of them fled. Disciples loved kingdom authority. Pilate loved peace. Turn chapter 27, verse 15. Now the feast, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. 
So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Messiah? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a message to him saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for, the la- for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. See how the bind that Pilate is in? Right? The, the spiritual leaders, the authorities are, have basically said, look, we'll go to Rome with this. And we will tell Rome that you're not actually a friend of Caesar's because you have allowed this, this Jewish peasant to proclaim himself as a king. And Pilate doesn't want that. But on the other hand, his wife says, <laughs> leave, leave this man alone, right? He's kind of torn, right? He kind of wants peace in his home. He doesn't want to lose his position. So what does he do? He abdicates his responsibility. He takes water and he washes his hands and he says, you do what you want. Why? Because he's not a peacemaker, he's a peace lover. Above all else, rather than doing the right thing, Pilate just loved peace. Let's just keep the status quo. The soldiers loved power. Chapter 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and then they took the reed out of his hands and they began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and they put on his own garments. And they led him away to crucify him. Man, we, we step back from that just a moment. We say, these men are bent. Right? That it could be acceptable in their conscience to take a man who is seemingly powerless and, and to strip him naked and then to put a robe on him and then just to beat him up. And to stand around him spitting on him, spitting on another human being and mocking him. Why? They loved power, to to dominate others, to have strength over others. Each person loves something other than God, right? And so in the midst of this stressful few days, what they love the most just begins to rise to the surface. And so uh, what I want to ask you is simply this, what do you love? And what do you really, truly love? Is it honor? Do you really love the honor of people? And so you're willing to make compromises in your own relationship with Jesus so that people will think well of you. Or authority. Do you want to have control over others and what they do? Do you want peace? Just peace at any cost. And you will make compromises at work or in your family rather than stepping in to situations that are difficult and speaking truth. You will abdicate your responsibility and move back. Do you want power? 
You want, you want power over others. Whether it's physical or maybe even through your money. Maybe that's one of the reasons you love money. It's because money gives you power over others. Do you love money for, for the, the things that it can give to you? Maybe a sense of security. Nothing can touch me because I've got enough. I've hoarded it up. Or maybe it's the pleasure that money can give. What do you really, really love the most? I'm just telling you, you will do what you love. And in those moments when you're under stress and your heart is torn between two things, what you love most is what you will, in fact, pursue. And this is the problem with us people, is that we love foolish things. And so the question for us this morning is this. How do we let the Spirit of God reach deeply into our hearts and change us? Or, if I can state it differently, to to reform our hearts. There's one other person that we haven't looked at yet, and that's Jesus. Jesus. What did Jesus love? He loved his Father. John chapter 14, verse 31 says this, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly what the Father commanded me. Jesus loved his Father, and he loved his Father more than he loved anything else. And that relationship with his Father was the one thing that he guarded above all else. Probably the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful pictures of this before the cross itself is in the garden when Jesus is praying. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, that is the olive press, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be grieved and distressed. We're told in Luke that sweat came down like drops of blood. Was this a difficult time in Jesus' life? It was was horrible. And, and, And fears were crowding in to his heart. And so he said, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Please stay here. Keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for just one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Went away again a second time and he prayed saying, Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Left them again and went away and prayed a third time saying exactly the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus was, he was afraid because he was about to suffer. Let's suffer deeply. I mean, we, we've just moved through the Easter season and we celebrated the sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection, but we should never move far beyond that point. That, that really is the center of our faith. Jesus didn't back away in the moment of suffering and fear for us. He could have called legions of angels, we're told, to rescue him from that moment if he was more concerned with his own safety and well-being. But he didn't. Instead, he allowed these men 
to beat him on the head and face, to jam a crown of thorns on him, to wrap him in a robe after he had been whipped right, with a, these leather thongs with lead balls in it and just had his back completely shredded. And then they tore the robe off of him, put spikes through his wrists and through his feet. And at any moment in time, he could have said enough, but he didn't. Why? He remained completely resolute to the Father's will. Why? Because he loved the Father more than he loved anything else. And because he loved the Father, his loves were aligned with the Father's, right? He loved the Father and the Father loved him. And what did the Father and the Son and the Spirit love? They loved us. So even in the moment of suffering, Jesus didn't abandon us because he loved what the Father loved and the Father loves us. And so the Father didn't abandon us and Jesus didn't abandon us in that moment. They remained resolute and their greatest love, so to speak, rose to the surface even in the midst of this suffering. Why? Because Jesus trusted his Father. He loved his Father and so he trusted his Father and he trusted his Father's will. His Father's will was this. Men and women created in the image of God, God loves, God loves you and God loves me to the extent that he's willing to give his only son a brutal and horrific sacrificial death on our behalf. That's what the father loves. Consequently, he never changed course in his will. Even when the son said, is there a way that we could get this done apart from my suffering? And the father said to the son, no. And so the son said, okay, I will drink it to the dregs. Because I love you, Father, and I love what you love, and you love them. Jesus loved the Father more than anything else, and so the midst of all of that suffering, physically and spiritually, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of his friends turn and run. None of them were told in Luke's account that when Peter betrayed him that third time, they caught eyes with one another. And Peter wept, but how much more did Jesus wept? No one stood with him at all. And yet Jesus remained resolute for us. How do we become people like that? Right, that we love God so much that nothing allows us to compromise the integrity of that relationship. We will give all. Or if I can say it again, how do we allow God to reform the things that we really love the most? I want you to read with me in chapter 27, verse 57. Other than Jesus, there were actually a few more people who remained resolute in their love for Jesus more than anything else. Chapter 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there was a rich man who came from Arimathea, and his name was Joseph. He himself also had become a disciple or a follower of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against it, against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. So I ask you, uh, what possible benefit was there to Joseph to go get that body? None. In fact, there was probably a lot of risk. And what benefit was there uh, to the Marys to sit outside a stone tomb? Nothing. There's no value in that. There was no benefit to them. 
But they loved Jesus more than they loved what Jesus could give to them. They just, they just loved Jesus that much. So even this moment where they could gain nothing, for Joseph he could possibly lose something, they stayed with Jesus because they loved Jesus most. How do we become those kinds of people? I would say we become those kinds of people through deliberate devotion, right? Intentionally giving our best to Jesus. Devoting what is most valuable to us, our time, our money, our our, our thoughts. We intentionally devote our absolute best to Jesus. And as we do so, God has access to change our hearts, right? To love what really matters. What I want us to do is I want us to look for just a moment at Mary. And there are two lessons I want us to learn from Mary's life. Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. Let's read this account again of the anointing of Jesus. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper... A woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he was reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. We see Mary actually four times in the gospel narrative. We see her uh, at a meal in her home, where Martha is serving and Mary is present. We see her at the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. We see her here at this meal. We see her uh, at the ascent resurrection of Jesus in those days immediately following. Every time, you know where Mary presents herself? Right here. Every time. Every time she's just on her knees in front of Jesus listening, right? Every time she gets a chance, she intentionally, deliberately devotes herself to listening to Jesus, right? And there are, there are two lessons that I want you to really nail down from the example of Mary because she was so devoted to loving Jesus more than anything else that when all of the stress of these circumstances poured down upon her as well, she remained resolute in her love for Jesus. She was unwavering. She was not compromising. She did not leave Jesus. All right, so two lessons. Turn, back to, or turn forward to the book of John. This story of the anointing is actually told in Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke has an anointing story, but it's a, a different account. John chapter 12, John tells the same story. John chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. A okay, first lesson from Mary is this. Mary's devotion was courageous. Mary's devotion was courageous. Have you ever been in a restaurant where one of the waiters drops a bunch of dishes? 
in that moment, right, all conversation stops. It just goes silent for just a moment. All heads turn. Here's Mary. In the midst of all of the disciples, and glass breaks. She breaks a vial. Not only breaks a vial, but it's a vial of perfume. Uh, For those of you who have kids, you remember the first moment that your children discovered perfume or cologne? (laughs) The lesson is a little bit goes a long way, right? They take a whole bottle and it's, oh my gosh, right? That's what happens in this moment. Glass breaks, perfume, fragrance fills the air, all conversation stops, all eyes on Mary, and she's doing something that is culturally completely inappropriate. Remember, women were not at the the top of the the ladder on the social rung. And here is a a single woman who lets down her hair, which is disgraceful for her to do in this kind of setting. She lets down her hair. Not only that, she, a single woman, touches a single rabbi. And not only that, but she pours this out on his head and his feet and then begins to wipe him and touch him with her hair. It is is a... It is an awkward moment to say the least. All eyes on Mary and the disciples, not just Judas, but all of them react as we would expect and they rebuke her. And they say, what a stupid girl. What an idiot. Why this waste? And Jesus says, what you call waste, I call worship. I call that devotion. I call that holding nothing back. She breaks the vial. She holds nothing back. She pours it out on the feet of Jesus. And you know, men and women, when we make choices to devote our lives to Jesus... Sometimes others around will feel uncomfortable. When others around us say, I'm going to choose to live for Jesus completely, sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. I mean, we're celebrating that the Millers are going, but maybe some of us also felt a little bit uncomfortable. And said, well, maybe I should be going. Well, I don't really want to go, so let me give them some money. And then I won't feel so guilty about the fact that I'm not going or I don't want to go. I remember when my friends who are two of my my heroes, when they decided that they were going to go overseas, they sold their house here and they moved into an apartment in town so they could get used to apartment living. And they moved into an apartment here in town at the same time that I was building a new house. And you know, I felt a little bit guilty in that little moment right there that they're moving into an apartment and I was building a house. And I'm not saying that to make any of you feel guilty and honestly, I got over the guilt But what it did for me in that moment was it made me stop and say, do I, do I love Jesus like that? Would I, would I pour out everything? Great illustration of this in um, David's life. Remember when the, he gets the Ark of the Covenant, finally he brings it into Jerusalem and he's so happy. He's just, he can't, he's just dancing. He's just, he's singing and he's dancing and he's jumping around. He is thrilled and he just can't hold anything back. And his wife, Michael, says, you're an idiot, stupid king. So she despised him in her heart. She ridiculed him and he said, you know what? I wasn't dancing for you. And I'm not just talking about, right, when, when people around us, they raise their hands and we don't want to raise our hands and we feel a little awkward and uncomfortable. I'm not talking about that. 
What I'm talking about is when people say, I'm going to give my life to Jesus, which means I'm going to live more frugally. I'm going to give more money. I'm going to give more time. I'm actually, maybe I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to sell my business. I'm going to go. Or I'm, I, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. With, with an unreserved heart, well, sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. You know what? And if we choose to do that, people will feel uncomfortable around us. And the disciples felt really uncomfortable around Mary, and they didn't value the same things Mary did. And so they despised her, and they mocked her because their values weren't the same. They didn't love the same things, and so there was this clash. And if you want to love Jesus more than anything, in your el- anything else in your life, you better be courageous. But if you are courageous and you devote your best to Jesus, God will transform your heart so that in those moments of stress and trial and tribulation, you won't fold. You'll remain resolute. The first lesson from Mary, her devotion was courageous. Second, her devotion was sacrificial. Verse 3, chapter 12 of John again. It says, Mary took a pound of very costly, costly perfume of pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And nard is a, it's an aromatic oil. It's extracted from a plant in, in uh, East India. Uh, normally people, if they wanted to make an investment, right, they could use it as an investment or currency. It would hold a lot of value. They could take it in the marketplace and trade. They would buy an ounce. And she takes a pound. This is a Roman pound. It's 12 ounces. And what does she do with that? Well, she breaks the neck of the jar, right? She could have taken off the lid and poured a few drops. Normally, an honored guest would get a drop or two on their head to make them smell nice. She takes the vial and the neck was thinner. She, She breaks it at the neck. It's not a drop or two. She breaks it at the neck. There's, there's holding, she's holding nothing back, and we're told that it was worth 300 denarii. That is almost a year's worth of wages. This is probably all of Mary's savings. This is, this is her 401k, all of it. It's her IRA. It's all of it. It's everything. It's probably all of the wealth that she has, and she breaks the neck, and she pours it out. I, I can't help but think of, of Abraham's sacrifice, right? Take now your son, your only son, the thing that you absolutely love the most, and Abraham does. He goes, and he's about to offer his only son. He gives everything. Now, compare that to Acts chapter 5, we're told about worship. Ananias and Sapphira come, and they, they make an offering. They've sold a piece of property, but they didn't give all of the money, right? They, because they loved the praise of people. They wanted to be seen like all the other people who were making great sacrifices, but they also loved money. So they, they were torn by these two things, but what they didn't love most was Jesus, right? So they make this half-hearted offering sacrifice, which is really kind of ugly and gross for the church. As opposed to Abraham who says, I'll, I'll give my best. Or Mary who says, let me break the neck of the vial and let me pour everything out for Jesus. That, that's courageous worship. That's costly, sacrificial worship. That's, that's beautiful worship. And men and women, when we, when we learn to begin to practice worship like that, it changes us. We become different people. We love the stuff that actually matters. And we end our lives with confidence because we didn't chase after stupid stuff, foolish things. We want to be that kind of people. We want to be that kind of church. So how do we apply this? Let me give you a couple thoughts. The first is this. I want to challenge you this week 
to honestly assess your affections. Right? When, the, when the trials of life really begin to squeeze you, uh, what do you fear losing? Right? What do you cling to? You say, that, that'll make life okay if I can get to that point. Or, or what do you guard and protect as though it is life itself? Right? If someone threatens to take it. I want you to take some time this week, honestly assess, what do you truly love? Or when you're under stress, where are the compromises that might come in your life where you would just, just make small acts of turning away from living for Jesus most. I want you to take some time this week, honestly assess your affections. Second, deliberately devote your best to God. Now, how can you do that? A wide variety of ways, but let me suggest simply this. This week, I want you to steal an hour three times from something else, right? Steal an hour from your hobbies or steal an hour if you have the freedom from work, not while you're getting paid to work, Take an hour from some other place and just sit quietly before the Lord. He wants you to reread Matthew chapter 26 through 27. And in that time, ask God to make it clear in your own heart and in your own mind, what are the things that you truly love? And give God access. Give God those, those moments as Mary did to begin to turn your heart, right? And you do that by, by devoting your best to God intentionally. There's so many things in our lives, men and women, we don't have control over. We don't have control over most circumstances in our lives, but we do have control over what we fix our attention on, what we set our mind on, how we choose to spend our time, and how we choose to spend our money. And when we begin these acts of intentionally devoting our first and our best to God, that gives God's Spirit an opportunity, a moment to begin to lead our hearts that direction. Because the things that we intentionally devote ourselves to, the choices that we make over the things that we do have control over, those are the habits that reshape our heart. They reshape our affections. Let me read to you again Psalm chapter 4, verse 2. As David wrote, How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? And we as a church say, No longer. No longer. No longer. We want to be people who love the things that really matter, and we realize that that's Jesus above all else and the things that Jesus loves. Above all else, let's pray. Father, let us be men and women who have hearts that are undivided in our devotion to you and that all of the other things that we love, we love relative to our transcendent, supreme love of your son. And what you, Father, love and what the Son loves and what the Spirit loves, that we would love the people around us, that we would love those who don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would serve and we would sacrifice for them because that's what you love, that we would live our lives compelled by that vision of having all of eternity in your presence around your throne, worshiping together with men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Father, make us such men and women and protect us from the evil one and his deceit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go out and love what matters. We'll see you next week.